everyone. Thanks for joining me here on the Never Stop Driving podcast. I am again uh, out of the office. Uh, last week I was in California. This week I'm going to be in the desert of Nevada, north of Vegas. I am here for a very specific reason because I want to investigate what I hope will be a fantastic uh, outlet for drivers and for people who really want to get into driving. And this is what's called the side-by-sides. These are kind of off-road buggies that you can buy. There's a new one from Can-Am called the Maverick R. The best I can describe it for you is like a trophy truck that you can buy for about 40 grand. It's got 240 horsepower, tons of suspension travel, a dual clutch transmission. Uh, These things have really exploded in sales. Um, You know, you can go off road and for not a lot of money, this is where you can drive at speed, unencumbered, very few rules. You can drift. It looks like so much fun. I'm kind of fascinated by these. So um, I'm going out there with my friend, Zach Bowman. We're going to do a piece on it. That'll be in an upcoming Haggerty Drivers Club magazine. So I really hope you uh, check that out by joining the Haggerty Drivers Club. In the meantime, though, um, I have a conversation I've wanted to have for a really, really long time, and I hope you enjoyed it. It's with Mike Spagnoli. He's the president and CEO of the Specialty Equipment Market Association. Now, this is better known as something called SEMA. Now, why this is interesting, SEMA is like a trade group of all the small kind of businesses that make aftermarket parts for your car. So that includes Holly's carburetors, or it includes like weld wheels, or, you know, some small little mom and pop that makes a, a, a like a ground effects kit for your Honda Civic. That's all under the SEMA umbrella. I wanted to talk to him to get a sense for how big this market is, to explain this madness it is the annual senior show, SEMA show in Vegas, but also something that's really been on my mind a lot lately is the shortage of craftspeople to keep these cars on the road. I mean, if you've tried to go get a paint job for your car and you found, you know, years wait list and maybe you can't even find somebody to properly tune your carburetor or to keep your fuel injected car from the 80s on the road. And SEMA has a lot of initiatives to try and rectify that. And so I wanted to get a his sense of like, how's it going and what sense we're doing. And then talk about the car world in general, because that group, you know, if you think about it, nobody's really goes into any of those businesses as like an entrepreneur. They have the entrepreneurial skills, but really at the end of the day, they're all passion businesses and they love it. And it's their industry. And that's super energetic to be around. He's around and he's sort of a spokesman for him. So that's what I want to talk to him. I hope you enjoy it. And um, next week I'll be back um, with another um, episode of Never Stop Driving. I'll be back in my office. But in the meantime, um, please rate us if you like it. That would really help us. Send me your comments. Um, you can get in touch with me either on Instagram or Facebook or at the Hagerty.com slash media site. And let me know how we're doing. This podcast is new. We're having a great time. We hope you're enjoying it. All right, everybody, I'll catch you next week. Here's Mike Spagnolia. Okay, everybody. Hi, I am here with Mike Spagnolia. He is the president and CEO of the Specialty Equipment Market Association that's better known as SEMA. Now, Spagnolia has a lot of experience in the sort of aftermarket world before joining SEMA. He spent a lot of time in the specialty auto parts arena That included more than 20 years of product development, product vehicle work. Total car nut restores cars on his own. And he's been with SEMA since 2013. And so, uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. SEMA is one of those things that insiders, industry people know what it is. But I don't think the rest of the world is. So can you first, I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. What is SEMA? 
Yeah. So obviously we're really known for our trade show, but we're a trade organization. So, you know, our main focus is uh, we have about 7,000 manufacturer and distributor companies, all of, all of them from small little mom and pop widget makers to large Ford Motor Company sort of companies. And uh, we're a trade organization that helps uh, all those companies in the marketplace. Uh, we, we support them. We do legal work for them. We obviously have our trade show, but um, we represent all these 7,000 plus companies in the automotive performance aftermarket. So it's not, I mean, this is a, a really important distinction. You said automotive performance aftermarket. So it's not like when you need a new starter for your Bronco. Those are not the companies in SEMA. These are the people making the stuff to improve, enhance, modify your car. Is that a fair way to say it? And truck. Very much so. Okay. Right. It might be a starter, but it's a high performance starter, right? It, right. So, you know, suspension components, engine components, styling components, uh, you know, more on the performance and styling uh, accessory side, not, not not so much on the replacement part side. Okay, so th this is what I love about SEMA because you said it's mom and pop, right? And it's the, you know, the, it's, I know a, a person here in Kalamazoo, Michigan, it's a one-man shop, it's, it's TRE transmissions. He knows how to take a Mitsubishi transmission and modify it for drag racing. So that's uh, like the smallest company that was be a possibly a SEMA company, right? Yeah, a lot of our uh, most of our companies are five million dollars and under. Okay. Uh, and of course, again, we we've, we've got the larger guys. I mean, Ford Motor Company again, or you know, the OEs are part of SEMA. They are SEMA members. Right. Uh, but yeah, it is comprised about eighty percent are smaller mom and pop manufacturers that just need help in every aspect of the business. And so they need. I mean. They need help, like marketing, getting other customers. What are the laws they have to adhere to? All kinds of those right. nuts and bolts business thing. I mean, okay, correct this per perception is if I'm wrong. So many of these folks got into it almost by accident. They love a certain right. something, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm going to make this a business." And then suddenly, it's like, "Wait, this is a grown up job? What are you talking about? Is that yeah. is that about right?" Exactly. Yeah. You know. So. Uh, it's so many that way. And they, uh, you know, we actually have, uh, I've got a painting I had commissioned that says it all started in a garage and it's <laughs> some of our forefathers, right. That's just really, I mean, if you go back to the Vic Elderbrox and some of the famous manufacturers of performance parts, those guys all started in their garage. Sure. And you know, t today they're multi-million dollar companies, but, um, it's a tribute painting that I had done that, that says these guys all started in the garage and really didn't know anything about. You know, they knew how to manufacture widgets and make cargos faster or look better or stop better or one of those sorts of things. And they their hobby turned into a business and in some cases a multi-million dollar business. Okay. So I'm gonna walk a little bit down the so let's say your Lunati cams. That was a guy named Lunati who was making camshafts right. way, way back. I don't was he making flathead cams or just uh, small block cams? Was he making do you uh, know? Yeah, I, I I think he was. I think he might have gone back even further. Although small block, he's probably small block for sure. Small block. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Lenati makes cams, and then there's other companies that maybe here in Detroit we had a, a retail stores called Ram Chargers that would sell Holly carburetors, Edelbrock intake, uh, Borla exhaust, and Lunati cams, perhaps. So then, I don't know how many years ago, decades ago, SEMA started a big trade show so that the Ram Chargers okay. of the world could find 
the Lunatis of the world and back and forth? Is that just a way to, you know, uh, increase and promote commerce and trade and things like that? Is that that's why that show started, right? Right. It, it actually started under the stairs of Dodger Stadium. Oh, really? In 1967. Yeah. A hundred companies. And, uh, and they were manufacturers of all these different parts and accessories. And they attracted buyers to come uh, to this trade show. And uh, it was a way of starting in that commerce. Okay. And now it's grown. It's in the Las Vegas Convention Center. It's every year right yep. around Halloween. And yep. um, it is the most amazing show of the year. It's my favorite. It's uh, it's hard to explain to people. Can you give it a shot so our listeners have and some idea I, of it? I, 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 I'll give you, I'll try to. It is uh, over 2,000 manufacturers. It's in 3 million square feet of space. Holy smokes. To give that an idea. It is miles and miles of aisleways, um, 150, 160,000 business to business people show up. And every year it is just amazing eye candy of of specialty built vehicles of new products of mm-hmm. and it's it goes on for four days and uh and you can't really even take it in all in four days uh, but you try your best it's uh, over two thousand new products get introduced and um e- each year and each year when you see some new product you're like why didn't i think of that yeah, it's really the fun. It's all this human ingenuity right there in this show. And, you know, since there are, I mean, how many people go? Like half a million, well, right? Between 150, yeah, no, 150, 160,000 B2B, business to business. I mean, you have to I mean, be, you know, it's it's the one automotive or car or trade show that every automotive enthusiast wants to go to, but can't because you have to be in the business. Right. It's, it's, it's private, but here's the thing that amazes me. So it it takes over the entire LA convention center. And then there's this big parking lot right out front. And there are show cars on show cars on show cars on show cars. And what I mean by that is there are these custom cars and a lot of trucks jacked up. And I know how many you said, you know, 80% are under 5 million in business. And I'm just fascinated that they have all these show cars. Like they're spending so much money on this car and it's just, it's sitting out there in the parking lot, not even a sign of who built it. And I'm like, why are they doing this? And it is such a pride thing. It's like, they want to show what they're capable of. Right. And they want to, there's a prestige to having their car at SEMA. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, there's a combination that happens outside. It is, the manufacturers who build that car to show off at the, you know, at the SEMA show yeah. and they spend months getting ready for it. And, and sometimes the paint's still drying as it rolls out on the, on the front lawn there. But, uh, but there's also builders that can come to the show. So yes. they might've gotten product from Illuminati or from Edelbrock or anybody else. And they are actually maybe even a consumer who has built that car or, or an enthusiast. They may not be able to get into the show, but they can brag that they're, car was out front and uh and sponsored by a build sponsored by a manufacturer got it i thought sema had opened up a day to the public is that not true it, it is so okay. uh we started two years ago on friday uh up to ten thousand consumers can come to the show and then we even added a, a second piece this last year called sema fest which is a consumer facing show so the industry is shifting and we're trying to read and shift with it while uh, our manufacturers primarily have always wanted to be B2B. The larger manufacturers now want 
more consumer interaction. Oh, interesting. And so we're trying to balance that out. And, uh, um, you know, they just want brand identity and consumer facing. So we're allowing that to happen on Friday uh, with SEMA Fest and with allowing up to 10,000 consumers to walk into the show. So yeah. it, that is a shift in the business. Well, it's, it's, it's a very influential audience in the, or a crowd, I should say, in the enthusiast community. And what I mean by that is those 150,000 that go there, they're living this day to day. I mean, they are the hardest of the hardcore. So you also have right. a lot of companies like the fuel and lubricant companies, the mobiles of the world, the Exxons, the shells, the tire companies, they all want to talk to this audience so that this audience might right. use their product because they are their peer group expert is, um, one of the right. things I find really interesting about it. Um, is that, is that why, I mean, cause there are a lot of big companies there too. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. So you're right. It, it, for, you know, these, these are the influencers yeah. in the marketplace. These are the guys that, you know, the guy down the street may be thinking about buying a new car and he goes to the, the automotive enthusiast or to that hardcore guy and says, what should I buy? And that's why even some of the OEs will show up. You know, yeah. General Motors has done, when they launch a new Corvette, for example, they'll do a ride and drive. Knowing that they, that, that enthusiast is going to tell 10 more people about the new C8 Corvette and what a great car it is after they've driven it. So um, you're right. These are the really the core buyers, sellers, manufacturers, uh, trade, um, uh, you know, that, that get out and influence this. And, and of course, the media, too. We get over 3,000 different media guests. That oh, yeah. Show. Yeah, it's fun. It's yeah. yeah it, it, there's a way to describe, though. There's a this is not a genteel show. And what I mean by that, you go to the Detroit show, you go to a normal car show and it's quiet. There may be some violins playing and you're, you're, you're just walking around cars. This place is like, it's not quite a rave, but it's close. And I mean, you know, outside you've got drift competitions, you got trucks jumping, there's noise and there's smoke. And there's just like, man, by the end of the day, I mean, I'm getting up there in age. I am exhausted. I mean, I'm like, yeah. I'm just going to go to bed, skip dinner. I mean, there's, there, there is a real, I, there's an edge to this show yeah. that's really fun and energizing. It, it is for sure. There's so much energy that goes on. And, you know, for a lot of us, it's old home week. You get to see friends, competitors, yeah. all those sorts of things. You get to, you know, there's a competition that uh, you know, kind of element to it where, again, the best of the best cars show up yep. and are debuted there. Uh, we have our battle of the builders. And every year when I think that it's just not going to get any better of a car build, something new, something trick, something different shows up. And the quality of the builds continue to go up. The quality of the paint, yeah. the, the accessories that come out, the ingenuity, the all of that, um, you know, just continues to elevate every single year. And this competition that help, happens and this best new products that happens and all of that, um, you know, shows up you know that's why the oes show up that's why all the big companies show up um and honestly you know we even get uh some of the oes that show up that send their uh accessory planners and those sorts of things they want to see what accessories they want to add to their next generation vehicle or how can they uh they get ideas there right i mean yeah i mean a lot know, of the, these smaller companies are, are right on the you know, there are a lot of younger people starting these companies and they're recognizing a niche in the market or a need or a hole and they're filling it. And so you go around the show, you kind of see like, oh, are those skirts the new thing? Not my deal, but right. are they the new thing? Okay. You know, um, yeah. and yeah. and the, 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 the 
the level of craftsmanship I see on these show cars, it just blows me away. And the talent yeah. walking around those halls, you know, whether it be fabricating, welding, making engines, you name it, it, it just, um, it's kind of humbling. I got to be straight with you, Mike. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in awe on these people because of what they do and, and the creativity they bring. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you're opening up at least to some of the public because we covered, I've covered it for years for different publications. It's, it's very, very hard to re- replicate that feeling in any sort of medium other than live. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, in 22, we were the largest trade show in America, largest in, in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. And, you know, coming out of COVID and then, uh, I think we're going to be in the, I'm sure we're going to be in the top five in for our 23 show. Those numbers haven't shown up yet, but, um, we're definitely in the top one or two in Las Vegas. So it's, um, it's a, it's, it's a big event. It, like you said, the electricity in the air, the stuff that goes on and it goes, you know, I'm like you, I, I'm pretty done by the end of the day, but it goes from oh yeah six in the morning till, I mean, parties and all, all that, night, all night, yep. I mean, three, four in the morning, you know, you, <laughs> you'll see, you'll see some people show up the next morning in the same clothes they were in the day before. Oh, so. I got to tell you, that's where I learned what bottle <laughs> service was. I, ne- I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's was, definitely that that goes on. Was what I was at SEMA. Okay. So, um. You know, one thing that we're here at Haggerty is that we're really keen about, we support the Haggerty Drivers Foundation. We support this thing called RPM. It's it's really, I'm living this firsthand and it is, as much as we go out there and there's tens of thousands of these craftsmen and these people that can fix cars and restore cars, there is, uh, it seems like a huge shortage of those types of skills or the people that want to do those skills. And I know is really on the forefront of, of, of that issue as well. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, can you put some numbers maybe to what I'm experiencing? Is, am I, is it just happens to be, I'm in a dead zone in Michigan or is this happening throughout Uh, the world or throughout the country? No. Yeah, for sure. We, and we are fostering as much of that as we can. So, you know, for example, on um, Tuesday, we bring in uh, about 1500 students and we do a a student program and bring a lot of uh, young high school, uh, college, uh, students in to mm-hmm. talk about the trades to talk about opportunities mm-hmm. um we have various people talk to them about those job opportunities uh we talk to them about our job board you know and then we let them walk the show and really get the bug oh great um you, you know we do uh one of the ones i'm really excited about the uh the sae crowd the you know the engineers that are in college that are um engineering students and the society of automotive engineering um they have a a formula um competition where they uh do cars and in baja vehicles and that sort of thing so these these colleges are building these vehicles and competing against each other so we bring them to our sema garages and we have a career day with them where we talk to them about opportunities in engineering sure. in the aftermarket yeah and we'll bring in you know we brought in gail banks who was a you know a great guy that one of the top you know diesel guys in the world engine guy and he yeah yeah, engine guy, and he talks to him about opportunities in the in the automotive field. You know, and I I'll talk to him and say, look, you can go to work for Boeing and work on a hinge for the next two years, or you can come to work for uh, Magnuson and work on a supercharger for the you know the twenty four Corvette and be right in the thick of that. You know, your first year, you probably so, get to build it too, the first prototype. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So you know those opportunities for young students who love the automotive field or maybe have a taste of it 
and not sure what they want to do in the career, uh, you know, we'll do those sorts of things. We, you know, we talk to them about all sorts of job opportunities in the marketplace. So several different opportunities like that that we work through. Um, we bring young women in that work with other women that are in the field already to talk about their opportunities. Um, we have a scholarship program where we give, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year away. And I know Haggerty does as well, but yeah. scholarships to, to the, um, to students that are coming up through the automotive field. So, uh, these different career fairs that we do, um, really to get them enticed, get them excited, and they get a chance to meet some of their heroes that they've read about in social media or sure. wherever it might be. And, uh, um, as well as feel and see and touch the cars and, uh, you know, get those sort of opportunities. So yeah. we're, it, we're with you. We're big proponents of, of growing that market. It's a big issue. Um, there's this universal technical Institute. It's a, it's a, yeah. I think it's a for-profit mechanic school. I don't know. Do they do body too, but they do. They do. Okay. Yeah, I went we to the a couple of that here in California. I went to the one in yeah. Charlotte and it was pretty fascinating. They had some very specific like NASCAR classes you could take. But then they also had this room and that room was a recruiting room and you'd see these manufacturer signs up there. It was Mercedes, Porsche, Audi. Right. And I said, well, what, was, what is that? And they said, well, those companies pay to have that room so they can get the first crack at the highest performing graduates. And yeah. I mean, yeah. that really I'm, opened my eye. I was like, wow, these kids are walking out. They're getting recruited hard. And I feel like we're, there's some way we're not getting the word out to folks of what great careers are available and you're going to work for life. I mean, you know, in the corporate yeah. world, you're, you're sort of, you know, there's, you hear of layoffs all the time, you know, right. eBay just said they're laying off 10% of the workforce. Like unless you're a really, really bad mechanic, you're always going to have a pretty good job. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, so big proponent of that, you know, not, not every, child or, or student is made to go to a four-year college and get a degree in whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, the trades are, you know, you can come out of uh, UTI. I'm, I'm very familiar with their program and oh, they've yeah. got an incredible, incredible program. We've sent some students through there and paid for their schooling. Oh. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a second and third year program where Mercedes, if you're the top of your class, Mercedes and uh, uh, BMW and some of these other OEs will actually pay for your second year of school. Wow. Um, because and then you'll specialize, let's say in Mercedes, uh, and then you owe them a certain amount of time when you at a dealership, when you get out as part of that, mm -hmm. but you come out making 70, $80,000 a year as a technician right out of the gate. Yeah. Right. And, and you've got a, you got an opportunity. You're not, you know, I hate to say it, but you're not at Starbucks as a barista. It's amazing. You know, after, yeah. How do you come out of college? You're working, you know, in a field that you love yeah, and, and making some good money at it. And it, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Um, uh, the, um, one thing that we wonder about a lot is, um, sort of the next generation of we call them enthusiast cars. And basically these are classic cars that, you know, you built after 1980, we have shows, I shows called Radwood that, that sort of right. celebrate these cars in the eighties. But, you know, Based on our data, there's somewhere well north of 30 million enthusiast cars out there. And these are cars, you know, from that were built last year down to 1900. Now, SEMA was typically, you know, you think of SEMA, you think of the, the hot rod parts that came up, uh, were mostly post-war, right? We talked about Lunati Camps, right. Edelbrock, right. 
uh, Holly Carbs, her shifter, stuff like that. What we're seeing now is post-1980, there is going to be a big need for a new generation of restorations or technicians or specialties. And what I'm hearing is, and I want to ask you about this, is so uh, one of the great things that enabled these crazy 700 horsepower Dodge Demons that we have now is electronic fuel injection. It's computer-controlled engine management. And that really kind of started in the 80s, as you know. And those circuit boards over time, right, the capacitors dry out. The, the plastic and the silicone gets brittle and it cracks. and You right. can't see it, but it's not working. And I'm wondering, are you hearing anything about any companies that are like, yeah, we see this avalanche of this work coming. And if we can somehow figure this out, we're going to win. Anything like that out there you see? Yeah, you know, there's definitely some engine management companies that are doing a lot of that work. Uh, where they're running into some issues mm-hmm. is just the whole carb EPA issue of making sure that those things are still to the standard that was original. Oh. Uh, and that, you know, because, uh, so there's a few things going on there. That's, you know, we can get into the right to repair, right to. Oh, we have to. Heck yeah. I acts, forgot about acts. that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so the ability for us to continue to be able to get in those things to work on them, uh, the ability to continue to work with CARB and EPA, and, and we do a lot of that work here. Uh, 50% of the EOs that CARB uh, authorizes every year are done by the SEMA garage. Okay. Can, so, can I stop you there? I want to. This is a big yeah. point. I'm glad you brought it up. I just want yeah. to explain it. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what, what you're explaining, there are two, two government bodies to kind of determine the the emissions of our cars, the EPA, which is the federal, and then there's a California Air Research Board that is in California, duh, but also some other yeah. states have adopted. So they kind of yep. dictate what you can do with the cars. The, they they mainly focus on new cars. So there are these laws that every new car has to do this or that. It has to have a plug-in port, yada, yada, yada. So at issue, I think what you're saying is, is, is they're very leery of a company selling a product that defeats those emissions devices. Is that right? Yeah. And it actually goes all the way back to when emission control started. Oh, so, really? You know, I, I could point to the seventies. If, if you, if it had a, uh, emission control system on it, yeah, you have to make sure that the vehicle, uh, is within a percentage of that. So let's just take, you know, anything from seventies, eighties on. Yep. Um, if, uh, let's just say you want to develop a, um, a supercharger, um, you know, for a small block Chevy, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you're new at that and you want to develop that system, you have to ensure that that supercharger is within a percentage of the original emissions compliance before Sheesh. you can legally sell it. That's so, and, uh, and the fine, well, and the fine for that, if you don't, it's, if you start selling those products and you don't get a car BO, the fine is $35,000 per part sold. So you're seeing okay. some of these huge uh, settlements. Um, and so where we came in, uh, it's actually a program that I was involved in from the very beginning when I came to SEMA, was this SEMA garage, where we help manufacturers get through that compliance. And it's everything from the red tape of filling sure. out the paperwork to submitting to getting the testing done to submitting that testing to getting that car BO. And it right. can be daunting, um, but we have a 22-person staff now. Oh that wow! Just does that does that work for our, our manufacturers? So I should explain what an EO number is, and an EO number is something that's uh, 
provided by California Air Resource Board. We call it CARB for short. And if you want to sell a performance part to an engine, what the EO number does is it's um, a signal, it's a certification from that governing body that this product maintains the emissions performance of that engine. And every sort of performance modification you want to sell in California has to have an EO number. It's not the way for many other states where I live in Michigan, you don't need an EO number, but you do in California. The, the, that sounds really onerous, and I think it is for a lot of these small companies. The flip side is, for as a consumer, if it has an EO number, it is highly developed, and there is right. a, it's a certification that means it's a high-quality product, in other words, right? Correct. But, but, but to, a little bit of correction to what you said. Yeah. The EPA follows CARB's rules. Oh, it does? So even if you're, yeah, so even if you're in Michigan and you're developing that supercharger yep. and you're not selling into California, EPA will come after you for the other 49 states that says you didn't go through this certification and we're coming after you for selling all those products that don't meet an emission standard. I did not know so, that. When was that? Yeah. Is that recent? Oh, oh, no, it's been for a long time. So, uh, Cali- so EPA recognizes California standards, and there are 17 states now that have followed California standards. So you have to go. I mean, it, you have to go through this process. So, and yeah. you know, for a while the enforcement was pretty lax. But by the way, this is a that is a huge important service that you provide to these companies. I would think because, I mean, that'd be a full time job waiting through the bureaucracy and the laws and all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, right? So to have an expert says yeah. no, you 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 email Jim or, you know, Peggy, and this is the form you fill out and here's a test data you need to show. Oh, you, you don't have your test data. Okay. Go over here and get the testing done. Right. Is, I mean, that's all the stuff right. that you guys are doing. That's important. Yeah. We start from the very beginning. Manufacturer calls us and says, I've developed this new widget. It uh-huh. affects fuel or air. So anything that affects, I mean, uh, you know, air to air coolers have to have an EO. What? So, uh, Whoa. yeah. Are you kidding? So, no. Oh yeah, so, I guess if you um, reduce the temperature of the intake air too much, it might change it the density. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so yeah, anything that affects fuel or air it has to have a, a NEO. So you know, manufacturer A makes this widget. Mm-hmm. They say it's going to fit this this make and model of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. We go through and guide that manufacturer through the process. Mm-hmm. We uh, fill out the paperwork on their behalf to CARB. They can send us the part. We'll go find the vehicle that it was made for. We have a, we have mechanics in both. We have two garages, one in Diamond Bar, California, and one in Plymouth, Michigan. And uh, we'll put the part on the vehicle. We'll we'll first test the car stock to make sure. sure it passes. And then put the part on the vehicle. If it's within a certain range, we run those tests. Uh, we can then take that test data, certify the product, send that into CARB, and virtually get that EO from that manufacturer and they don't have to spend one day in the shop. Yeah. I mean, what a great service. I mean, I think what I was suggesting for, you know, for there's always, um, these laws are there and there's one thing to have a law. There's another thing to enforce it. And I've seen over my career, a lots of, um, examples where people aren't following the law, nothing happens. And then every once in a while, you know, everybody thinks, yeah, it's, we'll do whatever we want. And then the somebody, some agency comes down big. And the one that's coming yep. to mind, I don't know if you remember, but I want to say there was a YouTube outfit called the Diesel Brothers. Yes. And they, they were uh, on video modifying the emission control systems of pickup diesel pickup trucks to make them roll coal. 
and spit out right. all the black smoke. And they got in a fair amount of trouble for that, if memory serves. Yeah. So yeah, if I, I I think it was a it, in the million dollar range of a yeah, box. it was big. It, it, yeah, yeah, it goes on all. And we have seen, obviously, we've seen large companies, uh, well known companies that Carb has gone after or EPA has gone after, and there's some sort of settlement number, but it's painful. Um, and we've seen, I mean, there was one guy in Colorado who had made 33 uh, ECUs and got busted for him. And, uh, and it was public. So, um, and, and the fine was started at $35,000 apart. Wow. Yeah. So and this is a little widget one, one, two man shop that was yeah. making, uh, for, you know, Japanese high performance ECUs and, um, got busted. Well, it's not, I mean, what we're discussing is parts on, let's say, late model cars, cars that were built after a certain year. You know, for a lot of the real early stuff, the muscle cars, the cars in the 50s, they're really exempt, if memory serves, right? Right. Because they right. didn't have the thing. So yeah. it's just kind of the newer cars yeah. and making sure they're up to yeah, snuff. 50s, yeah, 50s, 60s muscle cars for sure. But, you know, the majority of the business today is in that later model stuff. You know, oh, really? Right. Yeah, 1975, 80 on to look, we, you know, it's amazing to me when we get a, and I was in that business at one time, but when we get a brand new, you name it, that's come off the line and the next day it's in the garage and the, the car's getting torn apart and parts are being made for it. So, oh, yeah. That, that's, a, that's another thing we facilitate is, um, you know, for example, we just had the new Toyota, the 2024 Tacomas. We're in our garage. Toyota sponsored the, the event. brand new ones, the ones that we haven't seen the brand yet. New ones. Yes. Ooh. So, so that, that's one of the other services that we offer. We work with the OEs to get the vehicles in the SEMA garages before they even come out. We then invite manufacturers in. In the case of Toyota, that Toyota brought its own engineers, and then these manufacturers get to talk to the engineers, and then we do these measuring sessions where we have CAD data and all that sort of work. Wow. Where these engineers can come in and develop parts, you know, suspension, anything, you, you can name it that goes on a truck. Mm -hmm. And so that when that vehicle hits the market, there's all these accessories ready to go. But when we, we had the Ford Bronco nine months before it came out, uh, worked with Ford. I see. Yeah. And we had hundreds of manufacturers in here that developed every widget you can think of for that Bronco. I and see. And the, or, the OEs understand that the more accessories that are available, the more potential consumers there are for that vehicle. For and sure. so they celebrate the fact that we work alongside the aftermarket and the OE to develop these accessories. Well, let's talk about off-road for a second, because, you know, the thought that just jumped in my mind was that, you know, over time, the amount of off-road places you could go, um, you know, since let's talk about the 60s, when On Any Sunday was filmed which is a famous motorcycle movie with Steve McQueen in it, um, where you could just kind of, wherever there was open land, have at it. Yep. And, you know, then the, the you know, they realized this is crazy. We're destroying things we don't want to destroy. And so the places you could take, you could go off-road was restricted. Now, and this is not new, it's opening up. And off-road is just, it's just huge. I mean, SEMA was, since I've been going there for 20, 25 years, it was very performance and speed oriented, and now it's it's like some combination of off road and jacked up dually pickup trucks. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, well, don't forget Overland. The, the new Overland, yeah, okay. That's not even new. 
Yeah. yeah. Even even Overland now, which is in the last five years, really become big is uh, and that can even be on a small Subaru. Right. I mean, yeah. the ability to have tents on your roof and these camp gear uh, from everything from crossover vehicles to, you know, Broncos, Jeeps, you know, all your trucks. Uh, but you're right. The off road market has become huge. Uh, and then the side by side market that goes alongside of it. Right. The, the razors and, you know, those sorts of things. So. Those manufacturers, those SEMA manufacturers, are building wheels, suspension for the newest truck as well as the newest side-by-side uh, ATV vehicle. That's my, right? So that, it's the same manufacturers. That's my next question. Okay, where do you draw the line between automotive and power sports? Because those side-by-sides, now you can drive them legally in a lot of places. I love them. I'm yeah. going out to Vegas shortly to... Drive that newest Can-Am Maverick R. That's crazy. It's like a trophy truck okay. you can buy off the showroom. Yep. Um, yep. Where do you guys draw the line? Sounds like you're like, yeah, bring them. Yeah, bring them. Yeah, I'll, I'll be at King of the Hammers this weekend. Oh, so, I'll be there too. Um, okay. We'll have to, we'll have to okay. see if I can see it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm and I'm taking uh, I'm taking my razors. I'm taking a couple dirt bikes, and uh, we're going to go celebrate. So, yeah, I don't know that we do draw the line anymore. It, you know, we we've had a ATV section at the show. But and we tried to foster that at the SEMA show. But what we really found is the same manufacturer was building for both. And so you'll go to you name the suspension truck company and they'll have both ATV and truck suspension in the same booth in, mm. in a lot of cases Okay, uh, and wheels and, and all of that. So, yeah, that craze is bigger than ever, of course. And then the truck market doesn't slow down. And obviously the OEs have really paid attention to them. I mean, you think about, you know. Uh, Ford Motor Company really doesn't even build a sedan anymore. They're they're oh, either sure. crossover or truck, right? And uh, and so the the truck market continues to grow. The SUV market continues to grow. Um, the side by side market is crazy. I mean that talk about a growth market in the last ten years, and the ability to, to go off roading. So uh, we are supporting all of that. It's a big segment of our industry. Gotcha. And uh, uh, and everything from complete off-road racing to um, the weekend camper that just wants to go out in the wilderness by their own and pop the tent on top of the roof and, you know, pop a few beers and, and sit out in the wilderness. It's a big deal. And, you know, um, I want to say about 10 years ago, I sent the writer to go to this big sand dune in Arizona in Thanksgiving weekend called Glamis, and I parked him with Robbie Gordon. <laughs> he wrote the craziest story. I mean, yeah. it was just like Mad Max with, you know, campers and kids. And it was like, I was like, this can go on. Oh my God. And, the, yeah. you know, of course, Robbie, Robbie Gordon is a famous uh, racing driver, Baja racer, huge talent. I mean, that guy can do anything with yeah. a wheel yeah. and he was just driving like a maniac and he just would break everything and, you know, yep. he commandeered another vehicle to get him back to his camp. He left the rider <laughs> out in the desert. <laughs> with some people and they're like is he coming back and they're like i don't know i mean it's just like the most interesting people i just i just love it yeah i have a hundred robbie gordon stories but one is he cost me about twenty five hundred dollars when he folded the suspension on a golf cart that we were tooling around (laughs) in (laughs) so yeah i did a thing uh, with him here in in detroit he had these um these what do they call his trucks stadium super trucks and yep. I wanted to do a story. So he brought out his ramps and I was jumping them. And, you know, I was like, 
you know, I don't know how to drive these things, Robbie. It's so weird. You got them on pavement. There are these big, tall, softly sprung trucks on pavement. And I said, let me just go around with you. And he had that thing on two wheels, bicycling, <laughs> two wheels. <laughs> totally leaned over. And then he's doing donuts around the camera guy. And I was like, Robbie, hey, man, I don't want to kill anybody. And he's like, yeah, I don't yeah. want you to worry about it. I was, it's fine. I was like, okay. I mean, and he, at the an same time, he's talent. fixing the car himself. I mean, what a character. <laughs> yeah. He's a modern A.J. Foyt, I think of. You yeah. know, he, A.J. Foyt, I have a picture on my wall of A.J. Foyt working on his own indie car, you know, yeah. and that's, uh, uh, he reminds me of Robbie. Yeah. So that's kind of the typical, um, that's a good way to think about SEMA. It's that sort of spirit. It's that sort of like, just roll up your sleeves and get it done. Let's go back to the, the labor issue a little bit. Can you talk about it? I know SEMA's, we're talking about aftermarket parts, but what about like aftermarket paint? The reason I'm saying this, I've been trying to get my car painted for a couple of years now, and it's a car I'm restoring and it's been really hard and it just got painted last week, but it was, it's been at the shop for almost a year. And, you know, it was like, yeah, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. I mean, I've been just jumping up and down over here and it's not like I had another place to take it. Like I'm powerless. And all my car buddies are like, dude, shut up. Just let it ride. You tick them off. He's not going to do anything. I'm like, okay. Um, yeah, that's the good guys. So I have a similar story. I have do a, you exactly really? similar story. It's literally in the body shop. He told me now second week of February. And it's a, it's a frame off restoration I'm doing on an old Datsun. Yeah. And, uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's been a year. It's literally been a year, but same thing. This guy's a craftsman and, you know, it's sort of like, uh, no soup for you. If you, if you get out of line. It totally. But th- I guess that's what I'm wondering. Like, what are we doing? What can we do to, f- to help fix this? Because this is a problem that's going to prevent more people from enjoying cars. We're seeing, you know, Haggerty, we track the value of cars, we track sales and all of our valuation guys are saying like, nobody wants to buy a car that needs work because wisely it's a disaster. It's a nightmare, right. especially if you need right. body work. So we have to fix this so that, you know, it brings more people in because they can buy the cheaper car. And then when they have money, they can get it fixed and they know it's not going to kill them. So I know we talked a little bit about some of the scholarship programs you see, but what is going on? I mean, is it just like the the body folks, the the guys who can do this in pain are, are older and they're passing away and there's no new blood coming up? Is it just that these jobs are so hard? I mean, it, you know, painting a car and getting it ready is no joke, that it's just not appealing. Right. What do you, tell me your thoughts. Yeah. So probably two things going there. We're seeing more and more chains buying up smaller mom and pop body shops. Okay. So we're seeing, you know, 20, 30 body shop chains really kind of consolidating that industry. And, um, and they also know, especially here in California, the regulations to painting is just crazy, right? To, to have a paint booth and how much paint you can paint and, you know, which kind put of paint? in the air and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 yeah all that. So, so the smaller mom and pop body shops that have been around forever are either getting bought up or closing. Uh, so that's one of the issues. Uh, so finding somebody that can do custom work or one-off kind of these body shops is sure. harder to find. And then, um, Oh, and that's and they because make their money in the, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to be clear on this because you bring up a really important in point when they buy up the small mom and pop operations, then their business just becomes insurance, uh, accident damage right. jobs, right? And that's where they know what how much they're going to make. It's very predictable. The stuff that we're looking at, you know, the person can estimate, well, I think it's, you know, 80 hours, but it's probably more like 100. Is that what you mean? Right. 
Yeah, yeah it's exactly what I was just going to say, that they're doing the insurance work rather than yeah. kind of the custom work. The other thing that we're attacking it with is we do have a body shop section within the SEMA show. And yeah. we're working closely with those folks in a couple areas in the newer technology and all this ADOS, which we can talk about in a minute, but this knowing now what you have to do with all this cameras and sensors on the vehicles, because that falls right into the body shop area. But um, but also just uh, working with this group on attracting uh, the younger um, uh, students that want to go into that body shop business. I mean, it's a that's another business that's very lucrative if you you know uh, if you're if you're good at what you do. I mean, I, totally. you know, it used to be you could do a, a you know a full paint job for a couple of thousand bucks. I don't know what you're paying, <laughs> but I know what I'm paying, and it's I paid three thousand know, just for the paint. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, these, these really high-end painters that we, we probably both know that Foosh uses and some of these other guys use, I mean, it's it's nothing now for a $70,000, $80,000 paint job. I mean, oh, for I didn't some know. Is that high? Top Is that end, right? Top, top, yeah, top-end custom cars. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and a year waiting list. And a year waiting list just to get in. Yeah, yeah. Some of the, some, these things that you'll see in Battle of the Builders and some of these top-end, you know, Grand National Roadshow shows coming up, that those paint jobs are, they're north of 50 anyway all day long that's terrifying but really pretty cool that people want to spend it so what you're saying is we do have an issue here and it's yep. kind of incumbent on all of us to try and rectify i mean luckily we have a uh, i was just talking right before you and i spoke the uh the head of the body shop program at our local community college called me and you know we chat back and forth i've known him it is a great program I mean, the community colleges, I don't think, get the attention that they really deserve. I've taken a lot of classes there. My son did in high school. And, you know, I've always been impressed. And, um, gosh, I wish there was a way we could explain to more people that that really is an option. We know we've steered so many kids to four-year colleges, like you said. It's been such a mistake. I'm really kind of burned up about it um, because that's an issue. Yeah, I, I go around here in Southern California. I'm I'm very passionate about it. I came out of an auto shop program in high school. Oh, did you? I, I still go back to my high school and speak every year. But yeah, uh, uh, the biggest problem is the parents. The kids want to be in it. It the parent getting the parents to understand that that a trade school uh, is is an honorable deal, and that you know a four year college may or not produce you know um, even the same amount of money that in a, a student's going to make in his career, let alone letting, making sure that that student follows his passion. I mean, if we've got passionate young people that want to come into our industry, they need to follow that passion and, and follow that career and have success at it. So, um, I, you know, I, I've got a close friend that uh, always wanted to be a football coach, but became a banker because he had to make money and he's been miserable because he really wants to be a football well, coach. Well, okay. This is an important point. Let me, let me run something by you. What comes to my mind? I understand where the parents are coming from because in corporate America, there is at least uh, an opportunity. It may be a bit of an illusion, but there's an opportunity to really increase your income if you climb the ladder up to the C-suite, right? You right, go into right. a trade, there's a, I mean, amazingly, there is a bit of a ceiling. You're going to get paid this much by the hour. And maybe over time, you're going to increase 3% a year, but this is what you're going to make. Right. So that is, right. my hunch is, is that's what you're hearing? Is that one of the issues? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, uh, but not every child is, is made to go to a four-year college and get into that C-suite, right? And so uh, what is their um, passion and where is their opportunity? 
And look, I mean, there's plenty of these small widget guy makers that are making as much as somebody in the C-suite. Yeah, I mean, oh. you know, you get a successful, you know, a, suspe- a, a successful off-road suspension company, you're doing pretty well. I mean, that's the thing that nobody talks about. The the people who are I call hustlers are aggressive. Like, let's say you're really right. good at your body work. Like, what happens is you, you see it time and time again. They know every car in the local area, right? They end up often buying the cars. They fix them up on their own, and then they make money selling them. That's one way, right? Yep. They they yep. broker them. They they trade jobs. I mean, I see these these folks, and they have money. I race with some of them. You have too. It's it's like what you see on paper is not what really transpires in the real world because there's such a need for somebody with those skills. I just don't know how you communicate that in the right way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it is that, and it, it is you know I'd even say it's a little bit of an ego of some of the parents saying, "Well, my child is a doctor or whatever it might be," yeah, uh, or you know, graduated with a marketing degree. Um, you know, it drives me crazy when they graduate with a psychology degree or something that yeah. they can't you know, can't put to use. So, right. uh, I see, I see it time and time again. I see where, um, you know, I was, I was speaking to, to a student who, uh, uh, their father wanted them to be a doctor and they were going into that field. They lasted two years, got out and ended up in the automotive field and they've got a successful automotive career now. So, cause that's where their passion was. That's sure. where their drive was. That's what their love was. So, um, it's, look, I, I, you know, I got, I got nothing against four-year colleges or any of those sorts of things. It's just not, not every student is made to go to a four-year college and whether it's in the automotive field or a plumber or electrician or, you know, any of the trades, um, there's plenty of money to be made and uh, they're great careers and, and they're necessary careers. Oh, it's, 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 uh, I mean, my story is, is a little bit similar, but you know, I remember when I did it, I have an engineering degree and I got a couple engineering jobs out of college. Miserable, miserable, always loved cars, loved them. And I thought, boy, if I don't do something to change this, I'm hosed. And this is not how I want my life to be. And I found out I could defer my loans for a year. And somehow I wormed my way into an internship at Car and Driver. And my parents were crying. All my friends thought I was an (laughs) idiot because it was was a $5 an hour job. And I had to pay off my car and a credit card. I was living with students. It was really, but I was like, I don't care. Did not care in the least. And uh, that worked out really, for me, it worked out really well. But I remember... Um, a lot of my classmates I went to college with, I said, you know, they were sort of like, boy, that sounds great. Why, you know, maybe I'd like to do that. And I would say like, mm, okay, well, what's your passion? And they, this is what still disturbs me to this day. They couldn't name it. And, and that's when I kind of realized, and that's when I really appreciate going to SEMA because everybody there is, they, they have a passion. They've leaned into yeah. it. I, I don't think a lot of people really know what their passion is, Mike. And I think that's part yeah. of the problem. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and then even if it is your passion, you know, like you said, you got to hustle. I mean, it's, yeah, oh, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, you, you know, if you want to, you know, be successful at it, it's, you know, and that's the other thing I try to tell students coming up. It's, this isn't in this industry, especially it's, you can get away with an eight to five job, but if you really want to, oh yeah, Forget you know, it. have a great career and make some money, you know, there's a lot of late nights and weekends and, you know, you and I are still going to car events on the weekends and sure. you know, doing all those sort of things because, you know, A, it's part of our business and B, we're still hustling and C, we love it, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, McKeel, the CEO of our company, McKeel Hagen and I were talking about the other day and 
you know, a lot of people are saying, well, the next generation, you know, they're just lazy. They don't have the hustle. And I, and I always think like, who are you talking to? We've got about yeah. almost 10 people under 30 just to, that work in, in my group. And they're every bit as hardworking as we were. I mean, I don't buy this bologna sandwich for nothing anymore. It's just generational bologna. I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. We've got some, we've got some people here that just hustle so hard and sure. great talent. And, you know, especially the, this next generation comes in that knows social media and knows how to market on cell phones and all that. Oh, big deal. That's going on is, yeah. and, and the ability to create video and content and, uh, I, I just, I, I, I'm amazed by it and I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah. That's off to you. So, you know, before we wrap up, I mean, we had a great conversation. I want to just, you're in this business, you know, tell me what our people should know. What should they be thinking about? You know, we sort of really cherish enthusiast cars, people that love cars. You know, we're all about, this is never stop driving. Like, you know, you're a racer, yeah. I'm a racer. We cherish this stuff. Like, you know, you're, you're in different circles. What should I know? What should I be thinking about in 24? Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing for us now is just making sure we can continue to do these things. You know, the, oh. uh, I've done a lot of work lately and speaking on, uh, you know, I testified before the EPA and, and Congress and CARB and all these areas where, um, you know, um, you know, I think that EV is part of our future for sure, but I don't think the government should be mandating that we're going to be driving EVs um, you know, going forward. And so, mm. uh, I'm a big propo proponent of letting technology continue to be part of that, that, um, the government shouldn't pick winners and losers that, you know, hydrogen still has a future. Uh, mm. obviously hybrid is hot right now. Um, synthetic fuels are big, biofuels are big. Um, you know, there's still a lot of technology that's evolving Sure. and, um, and a, a consumer should get to pick what vehicle they want to drive and not being told what they want to drive. I got nothing against EVs. They're great. They are uh, exciting. They've got lots of torque and power. Um, there's still infrastructure needs to come into play. Um, you know, technology still needs to improve all those sort of things. Um, but the mandates that are starting to come through where, you know, here in California by 2026, they want 35% of sales to be EV and by 2032 it's EV only and all of that. Um, I, 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 a, we're not ready and B, we should let technology continue to grow and be fostered and uh, consumers should be able to pick what they want to drive. And, and um, so we're facing that we're fighting it in uh, every state mm. that we can uh, and making sure that our voice is heard. You know, we are, um, we are a $327 billion a year uh, to the economy and um, moving to this EV thing too quickly will hurt that economy. Hmm. Um, the ability to, um, still develop and, and engineer and be part of, uh, you know, this country was, was born on ingenuity sure. and we should allow that to continue to, to, to be part of it. And, um, and, uh, consumers should have a choice. So we are, you know, we're pretty big, uh, in DC in our lobbying groups and, and those sorts of things, but, um, we should have a, a, a choices in what we drive. Um, we're all for clean air. We're all, you know, none of us, you know, we're certainly not proponents of rolling coal or any of that sort of thing, but, um, we also believe that, um, technology should be continued to thrive and the consumer should have choice. Amen. So, yeah, I'm with yeah. you. Well, I talk about a little bit, I mean, the, this, uh, you sort of, I mean, and, and thank you for all that work. I mean, we appreciate, I know, you know, somebody has to be the, 
the lobbying arm for that because there's certainly a lot of big voices on the other side. Um, you brought it up and it's, it's this, um, it's an, it's a really important issue that probably isn't getting the, the attention it deserves and it's the right to repair. Right. And if I can explain it in a minute, you could correct me. It's the idea is that as these cars get so computer controlled and get so complicated, the manufacturers are saying, Hey, we, we want to make it so that only the dealer can access these systems and repair it. And of course, all the independents are like, what are you talking about? All the consumers are like, wait, I, I don't live within two hours of the dealer. I need to go to my local guy. Right. So um, did I get that right? Can you explain that a little bit and what's yeah. happening there? It's a big yeah, problem. Yeah, so all of that. All of that's right. And even if, you know, I mean, there's even the fact if you think about if you could only go to a dealership, you know what the weight would be? I mean, there aren't enough dealerships in America to service uh, the vehicles that are out there. Didn't think about that. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, so the ability to continue for as a hobbyist to work on your own vehicle or as a business, as a local repair shop to be able to work on your own vehicle yeah. is really crucial. Yeah. And, and you're right. The, um, um, you know, it has to do with licensing rights and, and all those sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, we are fighting right now within Congress, the right to repair act. Uh, to make sure that consumers still have a choice, mm-hmm. uh, that that we still have competitiveness, mm-hmm. and that um, you know w- it, when you buy your vehicle, you own your vehicle, and you should have the right to work on it, or 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 choose where you have it worked on. Yeah, I think the the what I I don't really know what the state the state of the art is, but I've heard different things like, you know, if you're going to repair BMWs, you need a certain let's just call it a computer interface to talk to that right. car's uh, electronic systems. But if you're going to work on General Motors, you might need another tool that does that. And maybe some tools claim they do it all, but maybe they only do half of it. And the subscriptions for these things are tens of thousands of dollars a year, maybe even six figures. I mean, it is. This is why it's so expensive to fix your car. I mean, these tools that are required are not cheap. Right. And then we take it one step further, which is the right to modify. I mean, we should still be able to get into the ECU and modify and I'll give you an example. Um, we're working right now uh, in our SEMA garage in Detroit. We have a state-of-the-art facility that's working through these uh, through ADOS, through all the uh, the cameras and the automotive, um, Wait, you know, uh, tech. What is systems. that? A- ADOS? What, what the, is that? ADOS, the, uh, uh, the automotive, the, the driving assistance programs. So your lane change departure ah. warning, your self-braking, you know, all, all those sorts of ca- all those sorts of technologies. Well. We're doing research now to see what happens when you lower a vehicle or raise a vehicle and what those cameras are seeing. And we're actually working alongside of a, a lot of the OEs on this sort of work. But we're going to need the ability to get into adjust cameras or adjust um, those sensors as you modify the vehicle wow. so that the cameras are still seeing the same thing. So oh. that's kind of leading edge and where it's coming. But I we're see. doing both static and dynamic testing on that now. So You've probably seen where the a vehicle drives down the road on a test track, and then a balloon person, you know, cuts sure. in front of it or a car. And we're doing that kind of work to see what happens when you modify a vehicle, I and then how those systems work. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what if you get bigger wheels and tires, or you change the ground clearance, or the ride height, or any little things like that, or the rake? Does it affect it? Holy smoke! Yeah, it's getting complicated. Yeah. I'm sticking with my old cars, Mike. i hear you but that's some of the work we do here at sema that's sort sort of the leading edge work that we do between government and manufacturers 
to ability to continue to customize and raise and, you know, um, SEMA's, you know, 1.3 million American jobs. It's again, a $337 billion a year, uh, to the economy. So, you know, um, we're, we're a big deal. By the way, this is, you know, I told you about that transmission guy here. I just, I just came across another, um, sole proprietor business that I it just, I just love this. I just want to tell you, I got to tell somebody, I, I, I really like early Miatas and I, I've got one. I just got another okay. one and the tape deck didn't work. And there's through the Miata community, they said, well, there's this guy in New Hampshire. Not only does he restore the tape deck and refresh it, make it look good. He puts in a Bluetooth module. I was like, you're kidding. Wow. And I sent it out. It was not cheap. It was 400 bucks, but he totally refurbished it. He sent me a little bag of capacitors and the Bluetooth works. And I was like, this is fantastic. I get the look, I get the cassette, all my old stuff. I still could play my phone. Can you do this for an old BMW radio? And he said, yeah, no. If you send me two of them and I can experiment, yeah, I can probably figure it out. But I just know this one radio. And I thought, wow, here he has his own little business in this tiny, tiny just, niche. I mean, it, I just think that's pretty great. That That's it. You know, we also own the PRI, the performance racing industry. And that's another oh, piece I forgot of about industry. that. Yeah, but it's uh, so we have the PRI show, which is all racing, it's, it's strictly racing, and we yep. do that show every year in Indy, and we have a trade association for the racers. But you know, I was at uh, I was getting on the plane in LAX a couple years ago mm-hmm. to go to the PRI show, and I saw a group of older guys and they had racing jackets on. So I walked over to them and say, "Are you guys going to the PRI show?" And they said, "Yeah, we are." And I got talking to this one guy, and I said, "So what do you do?" He said, "Well." I make valve springs and valve train components for Hemis. And I said, wow. oh, new Hemis? Old. He said, no, older Hemis. And I said, so wh- what else do you do? What, what other engines do you make for? And he goes, Hemis. And I said, <laughs> so you're just making valve train components for older Hemis? He said, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, and he had a booth at the PRI show. He did? And yeah, and it was, and was in this business and, and, you know, older guy, but loved it and made a career out of this thing yeah. and was known as the guy that makes these valve train components for older <laughs> Hemis. It, and I never had met the guy. I didn't know about his business. Right. But I was, you know, and I, you know, I don't know how much money you can make on Hemi, you know, older Hemi valve train components, but this guy made a living out of it. He made a niche. That's okay. This, so. I, I have to tell you a story now. I mean, uh, about valve springs. <laughs> and um, this, is, this is one of my favorite uh, things that ever happened to me in my career, um, was I would happen to be at a, a, a new vehicle launch for a Jack Roush modified Mustang. You know, Jack Roush started drag racing and then he formed a NASCAR yeah. team. He was a big engine guy. He built engines and, th- and then he ended up doing a lot of work for Ford. Pretty legendary yeah. guy in the racing community. And I happened to sit next to him. Not the easiest guy to talk to, you know, I don't know if he had a bad day or he just, didn't want to deal with me, whatever. And so I'm working it pretty hard to try and get Jack to talk. Cause here is this really smart engine builder, motorsports guy. And at just some point I said, Hey Jack, can you name any like engine technology or some new thing that, that has really changed what you do? He lit up like a candle. I mean, like a fire. He goes, Oh yeah. Yeah. Valve springs. He's like, we just got these new valve springs. Wait till you see what they're going to do. And I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? And he goes, yeah, I, just forget it. And he didn't want to talk about it, but he <laughs> let it blurt out. 
And then wow. <laughs> later, um, I was at, I found out that that valve spring he was talking about was first run in a Jeff Gordon stock car. I want to say in the late nineties and he won the race because he could turn that engine to 9,500 RPM. Wow. And wow. you know, a, a typical V8 at the time was running about 8,500 RPM, which is really ever a uh, high still engine high. speed. That's still high. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and the, and the failure mechanism was these valve springs and it, and the company that made those valve springs is right here in Michigan. So I went out yeah. to see them and, you know, I learned about their process and basically the process is they make the valve spring as good as they can. And then they have this whole bank of people with magnifying glasses that inspect every valve spring for any flaws. Spring. And, wow. and, and that was the, that little part kicked off this arm race where, you know, these engines were just generating crazy horsepower. They're really expensive. And, you know, eventually, you know, NASCAR made a rule, but that is one of those little innovations that nobody talks about that has a huge effect on, you know, the biggest racing in this, in this country, NASCAR. That's this ingenuity that continues to happen at SEMA and, and PRI. And and that goes back to my point about um, even the, the EVs and all those, there, there is so much technology going on right now in, synthetic fuels and all these sure. you know running hydrogen through an uh, internal combustion engine now and all of that that we gotta allow that to continue to foster but yeah. um uh yeah all, you know all that technology you're right continues i just i just read about uh thermostats and how now engine thermostats this new technology where they are it really can help emissions because sure. i mean that's how finite they're getting now because if you can keep the engine at the absolute correct temperature that uh, thermostat technology is really coming along now that will just minutely continue to improve fuel mileage and in mm. emissions output. And yeah, so I mean, it's, it's isn't that the double-edged sword? Because um, uh, one of our folks, Aaron Robinson, wrote a piece on the 50th anniversary of the EPA. And, you know, in our community where we want to go fast, make a lot of horsepower and noise and smoke, you know, that is not a government organization that perhaps is love, but I, I sort of said, I said, Hey, could you make the argument that without the EPA, we wouldn't have 700 horsepower Dodge demons you can buy off the showroom floor. And I, I, maybe you can just hear me out on this and you can gut check me. So yeah. EPA starts the clean air act because, you know, in Southern California, the air was so bad, it was burning your eyes. Something had to be done. Right. And then to meet right. those new emission targets, you know, starts a really painful process of trying to improve carburetors, but eventually it showed up where it was the computer controlled fuel injection systems that we have today. And without that fine control of the fuel going into the uh, cylinders at just the right time, I mean, you could not have a reliable 700 horsepower engine. So right. can you make the argument that without the clean air act, we might not have that? Would we still be using carburetors? Yeah. It, I- I probably wouldn't want to admit it, but there you probably have a point there. So, uh, no, no, look, we, you know, as much as, as much as we kind of rattle on about this stuff, we work really closely with EPA and, yeah. and, and, you know, we work alongside of them. We literally have weekly meetings with them and, okay. and walk through some of the processes and, uh, and, you know, we call them when we think they're being, you know, too aggressive on something or when we need to work on something together and, Look, we're again, we're for cleaner air, we're for all technology, we're for performance, we're for all of that. Sure. And we, you know, we find ways to work, ways to work together. They come to the SEMA show and we walk them through, we put them in drift cars. No so, kidding. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Wow. 
So it's, it's uh, uh, you know, we find ways to, you know, work together. And even when they come up with something that's, hey, we're going to take it to this level, we are able to work with them to kind of work through what's possible, not what's improbable. Mm. And, uh, and so it's that working relationship. Well, thank you for doing all that. I mean, on behalf of the car world, yeah. thank you. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, the passion, enthusiasm for these things, you know, kind of what's make makes life interesting and worth living. So I appreciate you trying to preserve them. Same with us. We're, we're, we're building a business yeah, that sure. can, uh, support and preserve the, the car culture for future generations. So, uh, I yeah. think we walk arm in arm. Yeah, we do. We definitely in this car culture arena. We, I've, I've talked to McKeel about it before, but we, we really do work together along with other groups. Um, cause there is, um, it is a passion. It is a, uh, a hobby and it is lifestyle that we have mm-hmm. to continue to foster that lifestyle. Yeah. Well, did I miss anything? Is there anything else our folks should know? Uh, I, I think, I think we're in good shape. I okay. think, um, I really appreciate the time and the effort and uh, hope we can do this again. Anytime. I love talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. informing us yeah. and thanks for yeah. everything you do. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks so much. Yeah.